As you look in this sanctuary, it is quite obvious that it is that time of year again, and I am not talking about uh, uh, the Christmas season. I am talking, of course, about Advent. And so um, at Life Group last week, our our Life Group that meets on Tuesday afternoons, um, we had a Life Group's Giving which was just a Thanksgiving celebration on Tuesday, you know, sort of pre-party, get ready for, uh, get ready for Thanksgiving. And so we went around the table, um, and everyone had to answer this question. And typically, you go around a Thanksgiving table, and you say, what are you thankful for? Well, we are reading Paul's letter to the Philippians, and so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And so our question for everyone at the table is, what recently has brought you joy? And so as we were going around the table, um, um, Tiffany Reimer answered this question that what had brought her joy was decorating for Christmas. And she had already done it at the very beginning of the past week. Before Thanksgiving even, I saw Derek out there last Sunday hanging lights uh, on, on their house. And you look in their front window and the tree is just all lit up. Now, she knows me, and she knows that I have um, sort of appointed myself the, um, the, Advent, uh, the Advent police, and so, uh, you know, you can't celebrate Christmas too early. And so she quickly said that uh, Matt Anderson, Associate Pastor Matt Anderson, had, she had gone to him for counsel, and he had blessed her and given her permission, her and Derek uh, permission, to decorate early. And I learned that not only had Matt Anderson given Derek and Tiffany permission, but his family himself, for the first time, they had put their tree out before Thanksgiving even. And so, uh, you, know, I, 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 you know, I'm on brand. I'm a stickler. I say, don't jump too early uh, to Christmas. Um, and I really got on this kick. I'm not just a jerk uh, and like a, the fun police. Uh, but the reason that I am a stickler for Advent was that when Gregory was born, you know, 17 weeks too early, it was right in that, you know, end of October. And so kind of when we came to our senses, um, I embraced Advent as the season of waiting uh, because to me it felt very appropriate like at this time in my life that, that I needed to embrace waiting because, you know, we were celebrating that holiday season um, just in the hospital for an indefinite amount of time. And so that's when I became uh, the, the Advent police. But I have to say that I'm starting to go soft on, on this whole thing. And so while I still embrace Advent, I understand the desire to prepare for Christmas, to decorate early for Christmas. I understand that. I mean, like, it's really dark outside this time of year, like, for hours upon end. You know, you, you, I remember yesterday looking at the, I was like, it's got to be 9 o'clock, and it was 5.45. And so, you know, we, 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 we have so much darkness in, in this world, and we have so much darkness here in Minnesota. Who am I to, to shame someone for trying to bring a little life and light and sparkle uh, into the world this time of year. You know, if you have seasonal affect, you, you've been dealing with this for, for a couple months now. It's just so dark for so long. We just need a little light and joy and levity. And now maybe you grew up in a, in a church tradition that celebrated Advent, but I know that there's folks in, in this room who didn't, and so I don't want to take anything for granted or assume anything. And so this word Advent means arrival. And in the church calendar, this is really the new year. This is the beginning of the new church year, where we focus on waiting and preparing ourselves to receive the Messiah. And so Advent is the time when the church embraces the reality of of human existence that is dwelling in darkness. And so the four weeks of Advent are, are a season of fasting for the church that prepares us for the 12 days of feasting that commence on Christmas. And so while I'm not going to shame anyone for getting in the Christmas spirit too early, I do ask that you spend at least a little time reflecting 
on the reality of the darkness this Advent season. And then when Christmas comes, I also, I, I, I adjure you to please embrace 12 days of celebration, right? Don't let it just stop on the 25th or the 26th, but go all the way to the sixth day of January. Play that song, that interminable song, the 12 days of Christmas, just to remind yourself that, that this fasting is supposed to leave, lead to feasting. Just, uh, I think, in today's edition or yesterday's edition of uh, the New York Times, there was a little opinion piece by the Anglican priest Tish Warren Harrison, who wrote a book that we studied actually in life groups a couple years ago called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And she wrote this on Advent. She said, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right, and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief. And it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or unpatience, impatience or selfishness. And during Advent, you know, the church typically, the, the, the scripture readings are from the great Hebrew prophets. Because they spoke a word of light into a world that was filled with darkness. They were the ones who kept the candle burning through the night. But they also weren't afraid to name darkness for what it was. The great Episcopal preacher and author uh, Fleming Rutledge had this to say on the importance of the prophets in Advent. She said, the Hebrew prophets are crucially important at any time of year, but especially during this time. They address the household of God from the edge, from the frontier, from the place where expectations and hopes are dashed by the facts on the ground. So nowhere do we see this, this truth of the Hebrew prophets addressing us from the frontier, addressing us from a place where, where our hopes are dashed by the facts on the ground than our reading from the prophet Jeremiah. And so we're going to look at this text, and we're going to see what he has to teach us about desolation, about waiting, and about hope. So first, desolation. And here's what we need to understand about the context surrounding our passage. Jeremiah was a prophet who was, who was active at an incredibly crucial juncture in the history of God's people. So Israel, you know, Palestine, that's that, 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 that tiny strip of land that is situated on the shores of the eastern Mediterranean. And so it's always found itself at the, at the crossroads of the world. It's this important place, you know, strategically. And so the great empires of the world have always been, been vying to control it. It's gotten caught in the tug of war between the great powers for centuries and centuries. You know, you first have the Egyptians, and then you have the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and they're all vying for control of this tiny little strip of land. And the modern nation of Israel, I mean, it's, it's the size of the state of New Jersey, just to provide you with some context. This tiny little strip of land, but, 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 but the great powers want a piece of it. They want control of it. And so in the century before, 100 years before Jeremiah prophesied, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, had fallen to the Assyrians. They were the great power of, of, of the day, located in, in modern-day Iraq. And just when it looked like that the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, was going to fall in the same way, the Assyrians backed off. It was as if it was by divine intervention. And this led to a certain amount of pride within Judah, right? The northern kingdom had fallen, but we, the southern kingdom, had not fallen. And so they felt like because they had the temple, 
And God was on their side. They were invincible because God would never let them fall. God would never let them fail. And so they were filled with pride. And then there was a series of corrupt kings, but, but Jeremiah actually came to, came to prominence during the reforms of one of the only good kings that we read about in the Old Testament, King Josiah. But then Josiah is killed unexpectedly in battle with the Egyptians, and his reform program peters out. They're quickly reversed. At the same time that happens, a new empire rises, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It defeats Assyria. And so Egypt sees this as an opportunity to dominate Judah. And so they gain control over it. But the Babylonians don't like that, so they come and attack the Egyptians, and they take control of Judah. Well, then the Judeans don't like this, so they attack the Babylonians, a rebellion. The Babylonians don't like this, so they quash it. But then just a few years later, there's a great final rebellion where where the the Judeans arise, they, they try to cast off the yoke of the Babylonians, and this time Babylon lays the hammer down. They destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they forced the best and the brightest of the citizens of Judah to leave their land and to go live in exile. The Babylonians here were exemplifying the uh, hawkish foreign policy axiom that's attributed to the uh, mustachioed former UN ambassador and national security advisor, John Bolton. Rubble don't make trouble. So they said, all right, you want to rise up? Rubble don't make trouble. We're going to smash your city and your temple to the the ground. We're going to take your people and make them come and serve us in our land. So this is the context for our passage this morning. Jeremiah, at this point, he is under arrest. He's rotting away in prison in Jerusalem as the world is literally crumbling around him. As the country he loves, the city he loves, the temple he loves, all of it is going to be laid waste and left in ruins. There is an imminent demise and destruction just on the horizon. And so his prophetic word, it begins with the reality of the wasteland, The reality of desolation. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast in all of its cities. And so Advent starts in the wasteland. It starts in the rubble. It starts in desolation. Jeremiah sees that there are cities, and they're supposed to be filled with people. And he sees that there are fields that are supposed to be filled with flocks, and they're empty, they're barren, and worse than that, they're destroyed. He sees a throne without a king, a temple without priests or sacrifices. You know, we know that the wasteland is real. You know, we live in homes or apartments, but we know that the streets are filled with homeless people that We have supermarkets overflowing with food and yet people still go hungry. We have these incredible bodies, but they get sick and old and frail and they fail us. We have these incredible minds, but it seems that they spend so much of their time telling us to be depressed or anxious or to believe the worst things that simply aren't true. We have friendships that, that end in bitterness or misunderstanding. We have families where the wounds are so deep that we don't think that they'll ever heal. We have pastors and leaders in the church who fail and hurt the very people they have a sacred responsibility to shepherd and guide. 
We have churches closing or being turned into condos or bars or yoga studios. We, we have cities decaying, deaths of despair rising as fast as the temperature, birth rates falling along with the hope of what children we do have having a better future than we did. Right, Advent means that we don't turn a blind eye away from any of that. Jeremiah and the other prophets, they just won't let us. And so Christianity doesn't deny the darkness. It doesn't sort of hand wave it away and say, well, actually, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, there's tendencies in the East and West, in, in, in Eastern and Western thought, to deny the reality of the darkness, of the wasteland, of the rubble. You know, the, the, there's a tendency exemplified in Buddhist thought that, that, that suffering is about a misplaced desire. It's produced by desire itself. And so if you can free yourself from desiring, you can free yourself from suffering. You can free yourself from attachment to this world. And that is the way where you can find peace and bliss. There's the, 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 the tradition of karma that says, well, no, all suffering is actually deserved. It's a product of your own evil deeds, whether in this life or the past. And in the West, we have our own ways of dealing with suffering, traditions that say, well, it's inevitable, so what you've got to do is learn to deal with it. You know, give it the stiff, stiff upper lip, the stoic approach, or the Epicurean approach that says the pain of this world is something that can only be overcome through, through pleasure, so seek after pleasure, seek to ameliorate pain, chase after those things, and that's the way of hedonism and decadence and greed and self-indulgence probably our most popular current way of dealing with the reality of darkness in this world. But Christianity eschews all of these options and says that desolation is real. It is contrary to God. It means something and it must be defeated. Jesus was born in a desolate place, born in a manger, born in a little town in a land that was under control from a distant empire. Jesus himself would go off to a desolate place to pray. Jesus died in a desolate place on a God-forsaken hill on the outskirts of town called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Right, the good news of Advent is that God promises to come even to the dark and desolate places of this world. In fact, those just might be the very places where we should most expect to meet him. Now next, Advent teaches us about waiting. And waiting is one of those great themes of the Christian faith. I even talked about it last week in my sermon on elevating mission. And here it is showing up right the next week in our passage. And so the verbs that Jeremiah uses in speaking of this hope of restoration and redemption, they're all in the future tense. In verse 14, he says, behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming, which means that those days are not here yet. And so the season of Advent, it invites a special kind of waiting, the kind of waiting that gives us a space for, for real genuine introspection. Fleming Rutledge says, these weeks preceding Christmas are the best time in the whole liturgical year, the whole church year, for the church to be introspective, even more so than in Lent, uh, the season of the church year leading up to Easter. In Lent, we are attending to the Lord's journey, to Jesus' journey towards his crucifixion. But in Advent, we are summoned as the people of God to come before his judgment seat. 
and in Jeremiah, salvation, rescue, God's deliverance, and God's judgment, they're all tangled together. Like, like the strands of Christmas lights when you take them out of the Rubbermaid bin after a year. They can't be separated, but with work. And so few prophets are as scathing as Jeremiah. You know, if you want to give a scathing denouncement of, of the world or injustice, it's called a Jeremiah for a reason. You're, you're, you're telling it like it is and, and, and the unvarnished truth. So, so few prophets are as scathing as Jeremiah, but few make as many, as many wonderful promises as him either. And so the Advent message, when we think about waiting and introspection, is that salvation can't be had without judgment, just as you can't have forgiveness without repentance. And when it comes to judgment, it starts not by looking out there at all the baddies out in the world that need to be condemned, but it starts by looking in here at the evil, the anger, the hatred, the unforgiveness, the untruths that we harbor in our own hearts and lives. And so this season of waiting, it gives us the time, it gives us the space we need for genuine introspection. You know, the people of God, after they heard this this prophecy from Jeremiah, they had to wait, they had to wait 50 years before they could even claim any approximation of what he was talking about came to pass, before any of the exiles to return and begin the task of rebuilding. And if anything is true of our contemporary society, it's that we are terrible at waiting. We're terrible at it, we've been terrible at it, and I think we're getting worse at it. You know, our entire economic order seems to be predicated upon not ever having to wait for anything. That's like Amazon's business model. That's one reason why they're so successful. You never have to wait for anything. I'm an Amazon Prime member, proud one. Hello, Prime Day, you know? It's my third favorite holiday jokingly. But, um, but, you know, I'm so used to two, free two-day shipping on everything. And Amazon, actually, this holiday season, they're moving towards one-day shipping on everything for Prime, for Prime members. You know, we got Prime now. If that's too long to wait, we got Prime now. You can get everything you want, almost everything you want within an hour in some cases. I read an article this past week from The Atlantic, though, that focused on the incredible human toll that attends to us not being able to wait. That Amazon's fast delivery guarantee produces, you know, you have uh, injury rates in those fulfillment warehouses that are far above industry averages. Employees who can't keep up under this merciless pace and it just keeps getting, you know, faster and faster and faster. And if you can't keep up, you're summarily fired. And the article said, as ever-increasing production targets flow down from corporate Regional managers lean on warehouse directors who put pressure on the supervisors who oversee all those water spiders. Those are people who like get the products to the various people. Uh, Stowers, pickers, and packers. And the key to advancement is great production numbers. And so one former senior operations manager said this, it incentivizes you to be a heartless SOB. That's what the whole system incentivizes and actually, as they added more and more robots, you think, well, this will get easy because the robots will help. But, but, but as they got added to the equation, actually, the humans who could barely keep up were completely overwhelmed, and things got even worse. And this is just one illustration of how our inability to wait has a huge human cost. In fact, it is a, a dehumanizing cost 
for all of us of turning our fellow image-bearing creatures, women and men, into units of production or, or quota fillers. And waiting is actually something that makes us more human. Because when we wait, we, we have to acknowledge that we are, in a certain sense, helpless. We are not God. And when we wait, we're saying we're not in control. God is. And so we have to wait on him. Wait on God to fulfill his promises. Wait on God to answer our prayers. Wait on God's kingdom to come and will to be done. Wait upon a savior. In the darkness, we wait upon the light. But the good news of Advent, of waiting in Advent, is that Jesus is coming. Which leads us to the last thing I want to look at, uh, what Advent teaches us about hope. Because this passage, while it does not deny darkness and it, it doesn't deny that we need to wait, it is filled with messages of hope. That in this place that is waste, without man or beast, in all its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. That God will call us a righteous branch to spring up for David, one who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. That Judah will be saved, that, that Jerusalem will dwell securely. That David shall never lack a descendant to sit on his throne and, and, and that the temple will never again be devoid of Levitical priests to make sacrifices. And so these messages of hope, they speak to every dimension of life, to the economic, to the political, to, to the re religious aspects of, of existence. And this images of flocks and shepherds returning, it's one of peace and prosperity like we can't imagine because it doesn't make sense. But in times of great chaos and adversity and conflict, the first thing to go would be the shepherds keeping watch over their sheep because the armies would come and invade and take them first or, or, or if there's a lawlessness pervading, then, then there's no safety in, in keeping your sheep out and criminals could steal them with impunity. So only in a peaceful and a prosperous and a well-ordered society can shepherds keep flocks out in the open. They're like the proverbial canary in the coal mine. For us, it'd be like saying we can once again leave, you know, leave your front doors unlocked. Keep your, you know, keys in the ignition. So God promises a peace and a, and a prosperity and, and a security. But God also promises new political leadership that will be righteous and, and the renewal of religious life. And so as Christians, we look at these promises and we see them pointing beyond themselves and, and being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the world's true king and, and its true priest who offered himself up as a sacrifice once and for all, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Right? His sacrifice brought peace and as king, he rules in peace. But, but here's the aspect of hope that I want to highlight in this passage. One of them is that it starts small and fragile. It starts like a, a tiny little branch springing up from a stump. See, Jeremiah teaches us that, that, that hope comes definitely from expecting big things, but looking out for and being attentive to small things, caring for the small things, cultivating them, guarding them, tending them, celebrating them. See, hope is big and extremely small. And here's another thing that, that I think Jeremiah and all the Hebrew prophets teach us is that hope and optimism are not the same thing. That there's a crucial, vital difference and distinction between them. And, and on this distinction, no one has, has said anything better, I think, than the uh, chief rabbi of Great Britain, uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs, who said, optimism and hope are not the same. 
Optimism is the belief that the world is changing for the better. Hope is the belief that together we can make the world better. Optimism is a passive virtue, if it's a virtue at all. It's a passive virtue. Hope, an active one. It needs no courage. It takes no courage to be an optimist. But it takes a great deal of courage to hope. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is not an optimistic book. It is, however, one of the great literatures of hope. Optimism says, well, good things are going to happen in the future, just because, or because good things happen in the past. But hope says we have a future, we have a positive future, because God is God, and he will be faithful, and he will fulfill his promises. See, optimism is something that we have to kind of conjure and root in ourselves, but hope is something rooted and established in God. Hope is rooted in what Jeremiah calls, in verse 14, the good promise of God that he will fulfill. And the interesting thing about this is that, uh, you know, in Hebrew, there is actually no word for, for promise here. It's this word, uh, the word here is just debar, which I actually remember, this is one of my few Hebrew flashcards I remember from my seminary days. So this is impressive. I, you know, memorized hundreds of words. I've forgotten almost all of them, but I remember this was one of the first flashcards we got in Hebrew 1, and, and debar means word, affair, or thing. So, you know, the good thing that God is going to do, but the good word is what Jeremiah is talking about, what, what we might say, the good news of God. That's where our hope is rooted. And the trouble with this good news is that while the gospel is so big, I mean, the gospel is massive, it covers everything, it starts so small. The gospel starts so small. It starts with small people like Eden, right? Little things like this, making promises for a baby on a snowy Sunday in Minneapolis. It's so small, but so big. It starts so small with the inklings of faith, the inklings that I'm not right, and I need God to do something about it. It starts so small with with small decisions to do faithful things. It starts so small. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is what? It's like a mustard seed. It's the tiniest seed, but it grows into the largest of the garden plants. And so what Advent invites us to do in the midst of desolation and darkness, in the midst of waiting and introspection, is to be attentive for small signs of new life and to praise God for them. Be attentive to the the first rays of light of a dawning day. Be, Be attentive to the first echoes of that still small voice that will eventually fill the heavens with choirs of angels singing glory to God in the highest heavens. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards all. So Advent teaches us that Jesus is coming in the darkness. So we wait for it. We hope for it. We count on it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.